Um, We are going to be in Exodus chapter 12 tonight. Um, And as you open to Exodus 12, so I want you to think through when's the last time you uttered the phrase, make it stop. You don't have to answer that out loud. You don't have to tell us what it's about, but just when's the last time you just said, make it stop. I wish this thing would be over and done with. I'm not asking, have you ever uttered the phrase, make it stop? Because I'm pretty sure it's a when, not an if. But when's the last time that, that you thought of that? Um, this is not the last time that I thought of it, but, but a time that I remember very specifically just asking God over and over and over and over again, please make it stop. Um, and some of you know this, but in, in 2012, a little piece of my vertebrae broke, broke off into one of my discs. Um, and it was in January. And so for most of that year, um, I was just in massive pain. Uh, my, my, my back and leg, where's Rebecca? Um, yep. You get it. Um, exactly. So the difference in Rebecca's situation and mine is that the doctors really wanted to do everything they could, and it took a year before I finally got to have surgery. So I'm a little jealous of you. Um, yeah, we tried all sorts of different treatments, uh, electricity up and down my spine and shots into my spine, similar to an epidural, so I can actually resonate. No, I can't. I won't even go there. So <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Not going to respond. She said that pain's worse than childbirth. Um, so, I, it wasn't. I think I'm supposed to say now. So, <laughs> anyway, so we tried everything. Increased levels of Vicodin over the course of a year, which was not, you know, the best thing in the world. Um, and all I wanted was for this for this pain to stop. Um, and maybe yours, what, what comes to mind is you think of a time when you just said, make it stop. Maybe it wasn't physical pain. Maybe it was. Maybe it was emotional. Maybe it was spiritual. But, but we all say, make it stop, whether out loud or at least in our hearts and minds. We, that comes to mind at, at, at different points. Um, and as you know, we're walking through Exodus. And what you saw for the past two weeks is Curtis and uh, Ben Fort were up here is, is God pour out plague after plague after plague on Egypt and especially plague after plague on Pharaoh who continued to oppress Israel, God's nation, who poignantly for today, God calls his firstborn son. God calls Israel his firstborn son. Um, God's plagues were discipline for Pharaoh's disobedience. But what I hope you sensed as, as Ben and Curtis talked through them is that God's plagues were also uh, an act of God's mercy. Like the plague started small and, and they got more and more destructive over time. But after each plague, God gave Pharaoh the chance to repent, to obey God. And after each plague, before the more destructive plague would come, after each one, Pharaoh's heart remained hard. And finally, what we see today is the 10th plague. It's the one in which Pharaoh finally gives in and cries out, make it stop. But Pharaoh, honestly, is the last to that party. Um, The Egyptians have been crying, make it stop for some time now, as, as frankly, the plagues have destroyed a whole lot of Egyptian life. But it was God's own people, Israel, God's firstborn, who've cried, make it stop the longest. These are, as you know, if you've been here, if you, if you don't, here's the situation, is that Israel was oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh um, ever since Exodus 2, and probably even before that, we've seen them cry out to God, make it stop. They've been begging for relief. They've been begging for, in a very real sense, salvation. And so today, in Exodus 12 and 13, God finally makes it stop. 
God finally answers his people's cries. He finally breaks Pharaoh's hard heart. But I need us to see, and this will be on the screen in just a sec, I need us to see that as God does so, he does so in three different ways. Um, and, And these are things that we can remember as we call out to God, as we ask him for relief, as we ask him for salvation. First, God makes it stop on God's terms. God makes it stop while maintaining his holiness. And finally, God makes it stop for his own glory. This is what we see in these dual feasts, Passover and unleavened bread, is that, that we see God make it stop, but he does so through some great grief in Israel and in, uh, and in Egypt. We see a great salvation. We see a great trust, finally, of God among his people. So I want to pray that God would teach us today and then dive into these chapters. So Father, would you meet us here? Um, would you help us see in our own places um, where we don't come to you, how much more powerful you are than the things we do come to? Would you help us to experience, even today, uh, a greater trust and, and, and uh, a knowledge of our salvation, those of us who follow Jesus? And God, would you help us to see who you are in this text? It's in your son's name we pray. Would you teach us today? Amen. All right, if you read Exodus 12 and 13, what stood out to you? What questions do you have? What was new? What did you notice? What did God bring to mind? Anything come out? Yes, sir. In some ways, in some people's eyes, God is greedy. What do you mean by that? Yeah. He, okay. Yeah. So some people can see that in God's desire for us to love him, and I think I can also add like worship him and serve him. Some people can say, well, God is greedy or he's power hungry, right? Now, let's come back to that at the end, Henry, and see at the end if we really think God is greedy and power hungry, or if maybe he has something even better for his people. Okay. So lock that question away. It's a good, it's a good thought. Anything else stand out as you read these chapters? All right, we're going to kind of race through them, but they're, they're the, the story of, of two different feasts. Uh, chapter 12 is largely called the Feast of Passover, uh, and then chapter 13 is about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay? Um, and the question that we're going to see is, what is it that God's people and, and the Egyptians who trusted God, what do they do for each feast? That's what we're going to see throughout this. Um, but you got to understand, if you haven't read this, the, these chapters, we're going to kind of race through them, but, but there's a little bit of overlap between these two feasts. Uh, Passover started on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Abib, and then the unleavened bread started on the last day of Passover. It went from the 10th through the 14th. Feast of Unleavened Bread started on the 14th and went through the 21st. So it's two days, but even today, our, our Jewish friends would say they kind of all run together. Um, and the, the climactic day, the day that both feasts overlap is Abib, 14th, the 14th day of Abib. Okay, And this is what uh, Tim Chester, who wrote a book that all of your DNA leaders have that's helpful as we walk through Exodus, Here's what Tim Chester says about these two feasts. He says, the two festivals essentially take place on the same day and commemorate the same event, but they both reflect different aspects of its meaning. The Passover commemorates liberation from death since it reenacts God's passing over Israel in, bringing, in the bringing of death to Egypt. 
Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates liberation from slavery since it reenacts Israel's hasty departure from Egypt. So there's two things that are going on and two feasts focus on different aspects of that. I don't want us to miss the fact that often when people talk about the gospel, people talk about uh, Jesus's final days on earth and then afterwards, it's not uncommon to hear, well, Jesus died for your sins, and that's about it. What's missing if Jesus just dies for our sins? That he rose. And that's really important that he rose, right? And so in the same way, the, the, the Passover feast and the unleavened bread feast commemorate two different things. Easter weekend, Good Friday into Easter, are all kind of a similar series of events. But if we miss either that Jesus died for our sins or that he rose to give us new life, we're missing part of the story. So this is what we see foreshadowed in Exodus 12. Now I'm going to start reading in, in chapter 12, verse 3. The numbers, the, the, numbers the, the words will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or don't have your app pulled up. But Exodus 12, starting in verse 3, God is talking to Moses and says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month of the year for you, uh, sorry, on the, on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. So a lamb that you own, basically, a lamb per household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor should take according to the number of persons. It's this communal feast they're having. According to what you each eat, you shall make account for your lamb. That's why we're doing an RSVP for next week, to know how much lamb to have. I didn't think about that till today, but we're very biblical in that sense. Um, so your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. All right, here's what you need to know is that this is a big deal. Like this, this event, this feast that God is commanding is going to represent a new start for old covenant Israel. Um, even back then, like lamb was, was expensive. It was one of the choicer meats from among the flock. Um, if we're honest, lambs were also beloved. Like they would take the lamb into their house for a few days. Who, who wants to slaughter a pet, right? And so this, this beloved pet would be the, the source of the sacrifice. And after a few days, God's command was to roast it and eat it with specific elements and specific sides. We're going to see more of that next week as we celebrate this, pass uh, this Messianic Passover. Um, we're going to taste and smell and talk about the symbolism that went into this feast. But that's not all. Kids, if you were hearing that or if you read this week, what else did Israel do? What else were God's people supposed to do with the lamb other than just eat it? Yes, ma'am. That's right. They were supposed to take some of the blood of the lamb and put it over the door. Now, does that seem odd to anyone? That's not something we do when we eat meat today very often, right? Here's what's even more odd, or maybe just as odd, is look down at verse, four, uh, verse 11 of Exodus 12. Here's the manner in which you shall eat this lamb, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, this is the Lord's Passover. Now, y'all, that's not the normal posture for a feast, 
Right? Like think of Thanksgiving. That may be the, the most kind of communal day for many households today. And so picture like the days and the finances and the food prep and all that kind of stuff that goes into Passover and the smells that you've smelled throughout the day and, and everything that's gone in. And then finally, like it's, the, the feast is set, somebody's carving the turkey, but everyone is just standing around the table with paper plates ready to get their plate filled, not even sitting down, scarfing it down and then leaving. That's not how we would treat a feast today, but that's what God's command is. And that's because while Passover definitely led to God's people thanking him, it was not a normal feast. It's not a feast like our Thanksgiving feasts are. This is the night, like this is the night we've been talking about since we started the book of Exodus. This is the night that God would free his people. This is the night that God would answer their prayers. This is the night that God would make it stop. So look at verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land in Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Have we seen that phrase before? If you remember way back when Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh, he said, who is this God that I should obey him? And God's answer from verse six, chapter six of Exodus on has been this constant repetition. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It comes with his power. It comes with his goodness. Today, he says, I'm going to show my sovereignty, show my power over all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and this last plague won't befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, it's in God's warning and in his commands and in this institution of this first Passover that we see how God brings salvation to his people. God does so on his terms. He does so even through a great grief that's going to befall all people. A couple weeks ago, if you were here, we were having some Q&A and, and Marvin asked this question that if God always, does God always bring people low before he saves them? Do you remember this? Does God always bring people low before he saves them? And I, I haven't been able to stop thinking of that question. It's a really good question. And I think there's an overt way to answer that question and there's a subtle way to answer that question. But I think the answer is yes. God always brings people low, whether overtly or more subtly. In Exodus 12 and 13, what you see is God overtly breaking Pharaoh. This, this man who's claimed to be God, this man who's claimed to be more powerful than God, God finally overtly breaks him and brings him low. After Israel obeys God, they do take and roast the lamb, they do paint the blood on their doorpost. God carries out his final judgment on Pharaoh's disobedience on his hard heart, on his claim to be God. We see this down in, in verse 29 of Exodus 12, where at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there is not a house in which someone was not dead. 
And if we just stopped there, that's a ridiculously sad couple of verses. That, that's hard to read. And we've, we've said before, we've said that God is holy and he's righteous, which means that everything he does is good. And we've said that he's powerful, which means that everything he does, he is in control over. And we've said he's patient. And we said he's merciful. And again, in this, we have to remember, God gave Pharaoh and Egypt nine previous chances. The nine first plagues plus signs plus warnings. God is patient and merciful. He's slow to anger, but finally, God disciplines Pharaoh for oppressing God's firstborn people. Again, that's what God calls the nation of Israel is his firstborn people. And he disciplines Pharaoh for oppressing God's firstborn by, by taking Pharaoh's firstborn. And since sin has ripples, and we know this, we don't like to talk about it, but since sin has ripples, he took the firstborn across all of Egypt as well. And that's just a stark thing to read, and it's sad, and it's, it's shocking. But in some cosmic way, it's also fair. Like this is the, the natural result of Pharaoh's hard heart. In a sense, without any kind of joy in it, without any kind of like bowing up, God is saying, if you are, are going to oppress my people, I'm going to oppress you. If you're going to make life terrible, for other humans created in my image, I'm going to make life terrible for those created in my image as well. We've seen him do this with Noah. We've seen him do this fair and right judgment, fair and right punishment since the days of Adam and Eve. Through Egypt's great grief, Pharaoh's heart finally breaks and Pharaoh finally repents. We'll see next week. It only lasts a moment, but God's people are finally saved. Again, this is the, the moment we've been waiting for so far through the book of Exodus. God finally saves his people. Look at verse 31. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. He's finally saying, I don't have the power anymore. Do, do what your God told you to say. Just go, just do it. Look down at verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them. They did what Moses said and what God had said. They had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Egyptians had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord had given the, the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. And in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. You're going to plunder and take advantage of my people, God says, in a just and fair turnabout, I'm going to have my people plunder you on the way out. So God overtly brought Pharaoh low to break his heart and lead him to repentance. But in these verses, we get kind of the second answer to Marvin's questions. Israel and this mixed multitude, which is to say people from Egypt and people from other nations who, whose trust had turned to God when they saw his power, they were free. But what did they give up 
in order to trust God? Let's chat about this for a sec. Put yourself in their shoes. What did they give up in order to trust God? The only home they knew. They'd been there for generations. And you can go, yeah, well, they were enslaved, but, but getting a little bit further ahead in the story, at some point in the wilderness, they even asked to go back. There was a sense of normalcy there. Even if it was terrible, it was the only land they knew. What else did they give up? Gave up their homes. They gave up their old lives. They didn't know where they were going, which is to say they gave up their own self-reliance and ability to kind of control their own lives. This, this is what we call faith. Whether subtly or overtly, following God always requires sacrifice. Thousands of years later, we see this echoed in Jesus in a couple of different texts that'll be up on the screen here. Part of his banner cry throughout his life was to deny yourself and follow me. I lay down my life for you, so you lay down your life for me, he says. Romans 12 talks about how ours is to offer our, our, our bodies, which is to say our whole lives, as a living sacrifice. In a few weeks, we're going to get to experience baptisms together. Folks who are new to Jesus or folks who are, are being baptized for the first time. And the symbolism in going down into the water and coming back up out of the water is, is just that. It's laying down our lives, dying to self and rising with Christ. Even in the Beatitudes, we see this. If you don't know the Beatitudes, some of them will be on the next screen. They're from Matthew 5. But that Jesus says that we'll receive the kingdom of heaven. We'll be receive comfort. We'll, we'll be on earth for eternity. We'll inherit the earth. But how does that happen? It's only when we let ourselves become poor in spirit which is not a term we we use very often, but it's kind of coming to the end of ourselves, thinking lowly of ourselves and highly of God. It's only going to happen when we mourn. What are we mourning? We're mourning sin and brokenness, and we acknowledge its reality. We only inherit these things when we become meek. And the cry of meekness is to say, I can't. This is what Jesus is saying, is that only when we let go of ourselves Will we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Church, where does righteousness come from? Not ourselves, right? We can't conjure up righteousness. Righteousness comes from God through Christ. And when we yearn for it, what's God's promise in the Beatitudes? We will find ourselves filled, not by anything of our own, but by God through Christ. It's one of the biggest dangers in our culture today, like our church culture today, is that we think that our salvation is limited to praying some prayer one time and that then we can live our lives however we want. We can put Jesus on the shelf over here and ignore him except for a couple hours a week. There's even a debate among a couple different veins of Christianity that says, one says Jesus is just your savior and another says, no, he's, he's your savior and also your Lord, the Lord of your life. And, and the theme of Jesus is just savior, disconnected from everyday life. There's, there's a false hope in that. The Bible's clear. There'll be some that Jesus says, you call my name, but I, I never knew you. You're not part of my people. The scripture is clear, y'all, that Jesus is Lord. He wants and deserves all of you. 
in 2012 when I, I finally had surgery. Again, I'd like to just clarify, I don't think anything that I experienced was nearly what some of y'all have gone through. So just to, just to tie that off. Um, going under a knife means that my, my back was cut into and that there's still a loss and, and still a scar there and there was some, some discomfort. But you know what it brought? is way better healing than anything we tried through that year. It was like instant relief after the scar healed and, and is still completely fine. And, and, and here's what I'm trying to get at with all this. At Passover, when God gave Israel salvation, and for those of you who follow Jesus, when, when, when God gave you your salvation, and if you don't follow Jesus, and this is for some of you kids in here as well, if you don't follow Jesus, what God invites you into takes some sacrifice but it leads to greater freedom and greater promise and a better God and a better life. But again, it's on God's terms. There's some sense of loss and grief and laying down our life and sacrifice inherent in this life that we say we want to live. Following Jesus always leads us to some grief. It always brings us to the end of ourselves. Is that fair? And we don't get to play God and determine the terms of us following God. Pharaoh tried to play God and determine the terms. It didn't work for him. The one way to make it stop, the one way to stop trying to control everything or, or rely on other powers or this kind of stuff is to trust God on his terms. And so in these verses, we see what these terms are. God is and has been since Genesis 1, the very standard of holiness. And since Genesis 1, what has God said is the right judgment and wage for sin? What's the wage for sin, kiddos, adults? Death, that's right. And so Pharaoh here is just on the receiving end of God's promise. He's experiencing God's right declared judgment for sin and disobedience and hard-heartedness. But was Pharaoh the only sinner in ancient Egypt? No. Davis, you're shaking your head. No, that's right. Who else, who else in Egypt at the time was a sinner? Everybody. Everybody. Not even just Egyptians, right? Every human since Adam and Eve have sinned. And it's not popular to talk about the stuff we're talking about today. But God is a rightful judge and the wage for sin is death and everyone sins. And so for every Egyptian and every Israelite and for you and for me, what's the fair sentence? Death. And here's what you need to see. God did, didn't just choose to ignore that for Israel and punish the Egyptians. Do you see that? There's one author that said the sentence for every household in, in all of Egypt was the same. Something died, whether it was a person or an animal. As God moved through Egypt, death occurred in the part that Israel lived in, just as it did in the rest of Egypt. But what was the difference? Is that God provided a substitute. A firstborn, a perfect lamb would die instead of a firstborn child. God's people were literally covered by the blood of a lamb and their punishment was spared by a substitute. Y'all, if we can't get the foreshadowing in that, there's not a better chapter and an easier chapter in the Bible to be like, oh, I'll bet that's about Jesus. See, Passover is a partial foreshadow of what God accomplished fully. 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus, both the death and the resurrection. The wage for sin is still death, but Jesus took that death for you. Jesus is the full and final substitute and Lord and Lamb. And there's one condition for receiving that substitute, and that's to trust that the blood of the Lamb covers you. And so to, quote, make it stop, which is to say whatever need you have, God, make the hopelessness stop, make the joylessness stop, make the stress and guilt stop, make the anger stop, make the oppression stop, make the whatever it is stop. The condition is to trust God's way over other people and other things. Because we know this, but let me just call it out. There's, there's other things and other people and other methods that say, trust me, put your hope in me, I'll make something stop. You feel hopelessness? Come trust me for a little bit. You feel, you feel like you're not satisfied? Come trust me for a little bit. I'll make it stop. They say escape, escape from whatever it is and ignore reality. But, but in the gospel, God says through Jesus, you don't have to escape or ignore reality. Bring your full self to me. These other things say, I will offer you pleasure. And in the gospel, God says, it might for a second or two, but I offer full and final satisfaction. These other false gods say, give yourself to me. And in the gospel, God says, I'm going to be a better God and king. He's our right judge, but he's also our sacrificial king. Pharaoh represents these false gods who, though he was supposed to help people thrive, instead led his people to death. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though we sin and deserve death, leads people to life. And that's good news. So bottom line is that Passover reminds us that God crushes all the other false and fading gods, and God saves his people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us that after 430 years, some 600,000 men plus women and children, so upwards, some people think of about a million and a half people are finally set free. And if that feels like a big number to you, there's been some debate over the years, like how could that many people actually flee from one place under oppression? We're in a moment right now where that number shouldn't shock us because three million have left Ukraine. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were not just one event that happened and then Israel moved on. In these chapters, God makes three things clear. First, this was to be an annual feast to remember his salvation. Second, this feast was open to anyone who proclaims the name of God and claims to be God. And third, as part of this remembrance, the first verses of chapter 13 say that Israel would offer their firstborn, both in animal and in child, to God. Not in death, but as a whole life symbol of continued covenant and worship. Israel was God's firstborn. God claimed the firstborn in Egypt. 
And so Israel would offer their firstborn to God and say, he's yours, she's yours. In obeying God at the first Passover and obeying God at the first feast, Israel showed this great trust in God. In, in consecrating and sacrificing firstborn children or animals, there was this clear symbol of a promised covenant. And in reminding and carrying out this feast year after year after year, God's people declared God's glory for generation after generation across the world. So let's go back to Henry's question. Is God greedy and selfish for demanding his people love him? What do y'all think? No, why not? He deserves the love because he does so many great things. That's a great answer. Anybody else have any thoughts? Was God greedy or power hungry? Or is there something different happening? Yeah, Jack. Yeah, God's not greedy because he's nothing like Pharaoh. Some relief on your parents' faces right now. You didn't know what was going to happen there. Yeah, Pharaoh was greedy and demanded people worship and serve him. But did, did Pharaoh make people's lives good? No, he made people's lives bad so his life could be good. What did Jesus do? He went to death and death on a cross. He made his own life bad so that people's life could be made good. He's nothing like Pharaoh. It's a good answer. Part of the reality, Henry and everyone, because we hear that, and if we don't recognize that people around us are asking that question, we need to at least acknowledge it. Is God greedy? Is God power hungry? If God was not who he says he is, the answer would be yes. If God couldn't save his people and be the answer to every question and be the fulfillment of every need, then God would be greedy and power hungry. But instead, what God gives is a better answer to any other question and a better fulfillment of any need. And so what God gives is the fulfillment of everything we're looking for. So God's not greedy. Instead, he's just inviting us to the best possible thing that we could ever worship and serve and love. Right? So God's not greedy. Oh, I totally know. No, you, you, it was a very good question. And you know what, buddy? People ask that, and sometimes we don't know how to answer it. And sometimes we're like, I mean, it does sound, in this, in this chapter, it sounds like God's kind of mean sometimes, right? And yet, through the great grief, he saved a whole lot of people. And again, not just people in Israel. Since God is a God of the nations, there were people who left Egypt and turned from the bad God that Pharaoh was, the greedy God that Pharaoh was, to the sacrificial God that is our true God. Let me close with uh, uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 14. When in time the generations after you in the generations after you, your son says, what does this mean? You shall say, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, that's who's greedy. 
When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. So therefore, why do we do this feast? Why are we going to feast next week, church? I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that open the womb, all the firstborn of the sons I redeem. Whatever we face, whatever we need, whenever we say make it stop, y'all, there's only one answer and it's God. Passover was the greatest day in Egypt's history, in Israel's history. For centuries, God's people have recalled and declared God's salvation. Because thousands of years later, as some of God's people gathered in Jerusalem for a Passover feast, guess what happened? This man named Jesus declared himself to be the full and final sacrificial lamb who covered the sins of his people, not every single year, but every day for all time forever. It was after a Passover meal that Jesus was arrested. And it was the next day that he was killed. And it was three days later that God conquered all false power and raised Jesus to new life. And as our true and better Passover lamb, Jesus took your death and his blood covers your sin. And as the true and better Moses and the true and better Exodus and the true and better Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jesus leads you from slavery to a better and eternal life. Passover and unleavened bread, guys, these feasts point to Jesus. So let's recall just a little bit of that feast that we'll experience a little bit more fully next week, but take the bread and take the wine or juice because this is some of exactly what we see happen. Let me say it again. As our true and better Passover lamb, Jesus took your death and his body was broken a lamb without blemish to cover your sin. Can we say thanks be to God? Thanks be to God. Take and eat. And just as the blood of a lamb covered the doorposts and God's judgment passed over, so also we believe as we take this cup of juice that Jesus' blood covers all of our sin. And we're invited into a new family and a new life that's only possible by his blood. We say again, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Take and drink. Father God, thank you for this story. Thank you for showing yourself to be not someone who's greedy, not someone who's selfish, but someone who is both just and righteous and holy and able, but also merciful and a God who offers a way out. God, would we not be like the stubborn Egyptians who chose to reject your will and your way out? Would you help us to trust you today and in this and in all things? And would you help us to declare that good news to our unbelieving friends and neighbors, especially during this Easter season? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.